In light of the current events sparked by the injustice and brutal murder of George Floyd, we would be remiss not to take a moment and let our listeners know where we stand. We stand wholeheartedly with the movement of Black Lives Matter and are committed to do our part, demanding a change. As three white males, we know it's no longer enough to simply be non-racist. But this is a time for educating ourselves and pursuing a better future as anti-racist. We will use our voice to stand along our black family and friends to spread this revolution of compassion, empathy, equality, and love. We must see a change in the system. We strive for a tomorrow that is not simply colorblind, but a system that recognizes and embraces our differences. We understand that it is our own white privilege that has fostered this system whose leaders are motivated to keep us separated. But we will continue to actively repurpose our privilege and distribute our resources to help dismantle the very system we've created. You are listening to the Create Burn podcast. You are listening to the Create Burn podcast. He's in the Bigfoot costume. <laughs> he stole the Bigfoot costume. It's like a three hundred thousand dollar costume. Don't forget what your passion is. Don't forget why you got in the business in the first place. Make sure you always leave time for yourself to foster that talent. I knew nobody when I first got in this business. Don't be afraid to knock on doors. Don't be afraid to reach out. That's how I got my first job on the Cosby Show. Hey, what's going on, guys? We're here, CJ, C2, D2, we're all here. What's up? What's up, Chad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we've, uh, we probably talked about this, but Davis and I a lot of times go by C2D2 because it's our production name, the uh, Chad Crenshaw and Davis to Rock. CJ's just called CJ because... Can I be Me Too? <laughs> me Too? C2D2 and Me Too? <laughs> <I'm> me Too. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like Mac and Me? <laughs> you know what's funny about that, though? I didn't even... I was like, oh, man, that's pretty clever, you know, C2D2 because of your names, you know? Yeah, but people always go like, what do you get? What's your guys' production? Like, R2, B2. Like, they never get it right. And it's just like, it's just... <laughs> it's our names, man. Like, <laughs> It was probably a week ago to where I was like... It was during Star Wars week. May the 4th, around there, I was like, R2D2, C2D2. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, so now anybody who joins us that has like a a double lettered name gets like added for that particular project. You know, our buddy Booker, it's like Booker Brown. So we're like, ah, B2C2D2. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, I wanted to ask you guys. So we've got um, Dave Vangus is our one today and he is an awesome like first AD out in Hollywood and he's worked on so many great stuff. And I know we were talking about a bunch of his movies. And so I was curious of like the movies that Dave has worked on. What was like one of your favorites? For going old school with it, I know he's worked on uh, Ghost in the Darkness. Oh, yeah. And that was like... I was a huge fan of that film back in the day. <laughs> Any kind of beast movie was really like my jam. So like between Jaws and all that kind of stuff. But like, I don't know, like I was obsessed yeah. with those lines. Like at one point when I went to Chicago to audition for my acting school, I actually stopped by that museum just because just so I could see the lines that they had there. And it was yeah. really interesting because like staring at them, I'm like, Man, these things killed what how how these yeah. things like what? <laughs> what is going? These they look so scrawny and like weird and you're like but man, yeah. they, they were ferocious. It was like one of the first times they were talking about that they felt like they saw like homicidal tendencies mm-hmm. in an animal. But it was like things that they see were like they collected trophies, they like killed, but like yeah. didn't necessarily just eat it for food or bring it back to 
another animal that they were, you know, like their kids or, you know, the pride or anything like that. It was like they were just killing people. Well, and how they work together, too. Yeah. You're, you, would, you wouldn't really see that in a homicidal tendencies in an animal anyway, but then to see, like, a team of them. <laughs> well, and then on the flip side, he did uh, uh, Lion King. So then, like, later, right. then you have, like, him doing All, Another <laughs> homicidal lion. What's going on, Dave? <laughs> Wait, is that from Lion King? That sound? The, the sound, <laughs> yeah. It's the first sound in, in one of the songs. Oh, the little, like, yeah. Wait, is that it? I mean, there's there's more to it. <laughs> just just some old dude going. <laughs> is that is that from? Hey, guys, just, <laughs> A B C D D. Uh, I, I like that movie. I like Forrest Gump. That's a good movie. I, I don't. Oh, yeah. Not very many people have seen it. Can you imagine oh, yeah. being on this many movies? Like the amount of production that this guy's been a part of is just, uh, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and all this stuff is just it's wild. Just thinking about like working on a movie, kind of like um, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which I like. I think it's a nice little fun, feel good movie. But like just thinking about like all the places that they you know, actually went to, to shoot mm-hmm. it. Like they're in Iceland, they're in all these crazy places. I mean, he's got a bunch of those like that where, you know, he's talking about being in the Bahamas to shoot Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. You know, I know it's not always fun and games to be in those places, but to be able to have that experience and go work on stuff and be able to like see the world like that is like just amazing. Like yeah. I hope, I hope I'm as lucky as him. Knowing that Ben Stiller jumped in the Icelandic ocean. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. But there is yep. something too about I mean, you got you got your first ADs and then you've got your first ADs that first AD on movies to where the director's acting as well, you know? So the it's like yep. a all right, I'm gonna stop directing, I'm gonna go act for a while. Where's my first AD? Yep. <laughs> I don't think uh the Icelandic ocean's a thing, but it should be. Yeah, I knew that too. I was gonna mention that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so moving us on to our interview with Dave Vangus. He is a first AD out of Hollywood. He's worked on so many movies and shows that you know and love. You guys have to go to his IMDb page and check it out. Dave Vangus. I'm just going to give you a few. He's worked on Californication, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3, Tropic Thunder, Zoolander 2, The Jungle Book, 12 Strong, Lion King. He just finished up Jungle Cruise and A Quiet Place 2. The guy works on literally everything. He talks about the importance of mentorships that he had with Gary Marshall. He talks about working with directors Favreau and Verbinski and Krasinski and Soda Popinski. Pretty sure that last one is a Mike Tyson punch-out character, but he's worked with a lot, so who knows? That could be true. So let's go to it right now and hear some great wisdom, some great insight with the funny and awesome and super nice Dave Vangus. Let's go to the burn in three, two, one. One. Kick us off like you would on set. Be safe, be green, save a planet. Uh, wash your hands. All right, guys, today we're going to wash our hands. Exactly, right. Wash your hands. New safety meeting. Everyone's got to work six feet from each other. Yeah. Strange blocking shots with that. <laughs> it's a wholly new romantic comedy. Can't touch yeah. each other. So. Yeah. We were chatting a little bit because, you know, CJ was obviously had never met you and stuff. And you have such a, you know, just such an e- a nice, easygoing, friendly, positive attitude, which is not always the case with a lot of first ADs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Not all, not all. <laughs> Just to kind of kick things off, like as far as like you, I mean, you're kind of, you know, the leader on set in terms of, you know, the general, you know, kind of leading everybody through the through the thing. How do you feel like is like, I know this is probably like a heavy question of like, how is your leadership style or whatever? But I mean, just what, what's kind of your philosophies on working working on sets? Because they get crazy and stressful. And No, that's a, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, it's funny. My first thing is that I truly believe that the crew at the end of the day want direction. They want leadership. They don't want this chaotic, you know, it's like my thing is, the set is not a democracy. I'll take everyone's input. And, you know, at the end of the day, someone's got to make the decisions on the focus of the day. And so number one is they want to know that someone's there making decisions and keeping them on track. That's one. Second, then no one wants to get yelled at. I, my philosophy is ADs that get on set and they just scream and scream and scream and yell. And, you know, it just, after a while, they just become white noise. And, you know, what happens with white noise, eventually you tune it out and you're not even listening anymore. So mm-hmm. my attitude is be clear and concise, communicate, tell people what they need to do and w- what is needed to make the day. And, but at the same time, when, so when you're loud and you need to get loud for whatever reason, people listen, They're like, Oh, okay. There must be something wrong. Cause he's getting loud. I'm not suggesting, you know, there's two versions of loud. There's New York loud me who I can, my voice can bellow across <laughs> the set and, and there's loud just kind of always yelling and screaming and it's kind of militant style, which I do not adopt. I just don't believe people want to be treated like that. I think at the end of the day, everyone wants to do the best job they can, but they want leadership. You know, it's funny. I tell directors, I said, you know, I'm letting you play on my set. You know, yeah, it's it's their set at the end of the day, but yeah. they want to know I'm in charge that I have control over the day. Yeah. So what's uh, what's California allowed? When I first moved out here and started working out here from New York, I I literally, I think I put everyone into culture shock. And it was even funnier when (laughs) they started incorporating ADs into virtual production, where most of the people there are these guys that are usually typically animators and stuff that are Mm -hmm. suddenly they're on a set working like motion (laughs) capture films. And uh, literally, the first time it happened on the Zemeckis film, and I came on with this role, like a cut, and you know, and these guys, you could see, were just completely shell-shocked. Like, who the hell <laughs> yeah. are you? Why are you yelling? Why are you so loud? And it would be funny, you know, this one guy, John Brennan, brilliant guy, he is a lead animator and does a lot of work in the, the motion capture world. I had done a number of films with him, and when we, I got to Lion King and I showed up, I walk up and I say, hey, John, how are you? And he looks up and he's like, oh, he's like, oh God. He goes, are you going to yell again? <laughs> like, okay, he's like, uh, yell, who's talking about yelling? We're talking here. What are you talking about? <laughs> but even they, they got used to it and they loved it and uh, they loved the direction. Yeah. Give me the story on where you guys met. I actually uh, was working with some friends of mine. They were producing a, a, a thriller that we shot in Kansas City. And uh, Davis actually was one of our actors mm-hmm. that I cast in it. We cast right uh, all out of it. Kansas City was called Horror Filmed at the time. So we worked in, Chad was working both crew and eventually became cast. He kind of did everything. Yeah. <laughs> Chad was like, <laughs> welcome to Kansas City. <laughs> yeah. Chad, go get food. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And when you get back, you're going to act in this yeah, scene. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, but I got to be back in two because you need me yeah. on my se- on set. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a goofy, fun movie. Very, very, very ultra low movie. Uh, but we shot in uh, Kansas City in the bottoms, West Bottoms, uh, in the haunted attractions that are, I think are still there. Mm-hmm. It was kind of fun. It was kind of a, you know, take on the, what do you call those, uh, Blair, Blair Witch kind of stuff uh, like that. It's a found footage. He shot everyone yeah. with GoPros, shot, you know, the whole, whole thing on GoPros. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot yeah. of fun. That was a, yeah, it was a, it was a fun shoot because, I mean, yeah. it was, you know, being in a themed haunted house when everything's shut off and sometimes having to go into those rooms by yourself, even though you're like, oh, I'm in a movie, there's a party, it's like, 
Did something touch my back? Did <laughs> 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 you there today? There's one room that Amber had that it was called the coffin room, and everyone kept on telling me this cold, mm-hmm. this spontaneous cold. And we were shooting summer. It was hot. It was hot. We were all in t-shirts and shorts and everything, and, and they're walking through this room, and everyone kept on saying, "Oh, it's spontaneous." Cold. Yeah, whatever, whatever. And do you remember when we were shooting? And it actually started getting cold in oh, that room. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I didn't leave them because I couldn't see anything. I could only hear. And I went in the room and dad, yeah, hoods up and doing this, me the thermometer. I'm like, what the hell? I couldn't believe it. This is some freaky stuff. And then remember the other one, I don't want to stray too much on this, but the other one, Davis, remember there was a room, there, there was like a stone room, you go down these stairs. And the, the scene was that they think there's something in the corner. And I thought, I was like, oh, that was cool. They made that up. And, and eventually I can't remember who it was. Who was it, Davis? It was someone said, no, they're really, we really think there's something in the corner. And then I watched an episode of like Ghost Hunters or what is that? Myth- uh, it's what? one of those, but Ghost Brothers maybe. <laughs> and in that episode, which they shot years before us, they refer- referred to something in that same exact corner. Really? Wow. Yeah, and that freaked me out. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, that yeah, I don't know if you know this, Dave, but your shoot was actually what kicked off Chad and I's like friendship and uh, film relationship and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, so I think you're friends before that. I didn't know that. It, well, we, we knew each other. We just hadn't we really other, worked. We kind of knew each other, but we hadn't really worked on anything. And then a ghost-like experience that Davis had on that set <laughs> is what <laughs> we did our first short called Mean Spirited. That's right. And it was all because, you know, he thought a ghost I'm touched thinking, his balls. <laughs> That movie. <laughs> I was going to the bathroom in that little holding area that was like that yeah. kind of underground cement area. I was going to the bathroom yeah. and that bathroom is kind of creepy and cobwebby and everything. And I'm sitting there and <laughs> I was like, oh man, something just touched my balls. <laughs> and I went up and I told Chad, I was like, dude, I think something touched yeah. my balls down there. And he, he was just like mimicking like this ghost, like hiding under me, just like. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we came up with Mean Spirited. <laughs> That's the movie. That should have been the yeah. movie. <laughs> a ball touching ghost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably happens more than we think. Maybe we can. Uh, maybe we can pitch that to the Samadani. So <laughs> National Lampoons brings you the horror filmed Poe experience or whatever. <laughs> uh, I think it's happening. Ghost did not stay six feet away. Yeah. So, uh, what was what what was your hardest experience on a set before? Uh, working with you. Yeah, good. I, yeah, no, I'm not joking. I would joking. hope so. I'm, That's I'm a, mine too. I'm a little bit of a diva. I'm a bit of a diva. <laughs> That's a great question. Also, I um, I think, you know, listen, every movie has its difficulties and um, challenges, but I kind of thrive on that. When things are a little too easy, sometimes I get a little bored and I kind of, I don't look for a create, don't get me wrong, but I, I get excited when I'm like, oh, good, there's something, I have, a problem I have to solve or something is a little more challenging. The, uh, the, the hardest thing is probably when we did Pirates of the Caribbean, we had the biggest challenge I had was we were shooting um, in the uh, Dominica and then uh, St. Vincent with two islands under the uh, Lower Caribbean. And then we were moving up to the Bahamas. We had a special effects department. They were building a tank that was cut into the ocean uh, on this beach in um, near Freeport, Baham- the Bahamas. And the idea was to have a tank that kept the same depth so we could put our ships in there and work in a controlled environment as opposed to bringing the ships out to the water. And what happened was it was a mess. It was a disaster. And we were ready to move. We were like three, four months out on the other islands and we were moving to the Bahamas to shoot like 90 days. I mean, it was a long haul. And we were all getting ready to go out there and everyone knew this tank wasn't ready. We move out there and 
out of the blue, we have to shut down because the tank's not ready. And we were told we had to shut down for like a month. Mm-hmm. And that was a gigantic curveball because we were, we were scheduled and shooting two movies back to back, not one, two and three, Pirates two and oh, three. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so it had a trickle down effect through two movies. As you know, every day is valuable. To be told you have to stop for a month. It just had the trickle down was massive. It was the, it was the most challenging thing is to recover from that, figure out when to go, replan, reschedule all the cast who yeah. have made plans because now it has pushed us down and we had to suddenly pull three up and shoot some three, make up for two. I can go on and on, but it was a super hard challenge. And we had within the movie itself, there were some challenges that were hard enough as it was, but then to throw that. So that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. We recovered from it. We did very well. We, we made the films and you know, obviously they were successful. So that was probably the hardest thing with respect to being an AD. I can imagine yeah. that being a nightmare because those films are such powerhouses as far as like the, the cast that you have involved and, and how many crew and everything. And just shooting in the water in general. And it's just like, yeah, I, I could imagine that. That would set you back quite a bit. <laughs> Gore Verbinski, who did the Pirates 1, 2, and 3. I didn't do 1, I did 2 and 3. What I loved about Gore was Gore's approach to filmmaking, especially those movies, was do as much as practical as possible and then enhance with visual effects. He was not a big guy. We, you know, ironically, two had very, very little blue screen at all. Like the wheel, if you remember the movie, they were on that water wheel to doing sword fight. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Doing the sword fight and stuff. We really built, I, when I was scheduling that, I'm scheduling in blue screen, a, a, a wheel in front of a blue screen. He's like, what's that? And I'm like, well, how are we going to shoot this? He's like, I'm building a wheel and we're going to roll through a jungle. And I'm oh, like, oh, yeah, we did. we did. The whole sequence, swear to wow. God, there's one, one blue screen shot. We needed a pickup shot. We had to do a parking lot in Disney. Other than that, that entire thing, we built literally that hundreds of track and we had did it in Dominica and we really wow. well. The only CG part of that wheel was at the very end when it rolls and lands on the beach and flops mm. over. That was a CG wheel there. Oh, uh, wow. Other than that, the entire thing was a real built wheel. Everything, even him stuck in and he's turning was a rig that he was in. Everything was practically done and it was it was remarkable. Awesome. That is insane. How uh, how long did it take for them to choreograph all that? Oh, months. I mean, yeah. we, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. So the cast were putting some rehearsals for weeks and we built, we had to build a test wheel that they could rehearse on. So uh, something that rotated so they can get used to that kind of that kind of motion while they're sword fighting. They were all on safety. So we basically built a track. The wheel was on the track. And then above it was a safety line that ran the entire length of the track. And they had safety harnesses with lines so they could run with it. If they tripped or fell, they pretty much would have just hanged there. So that was the only safety they had on them, which was enough. So we had to keep practicing, getting used to that that motion of this turn, this wheel turning as they're keeping their balance. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. we rehearsed for months before we actually brought it out and actually shot it. That's and crazy. the actors did, you know, they did probably about sixty percent of it, believe it or not. And you know, you think it would be the other way around, but there was so if you watch that sequence, it's a lot of close up and medium shots. We didn't mm-hmm. we didn't put face replacement at all. There's there was stunts in them, so it was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Could you give us uh, just kind of a rundown of what an average day on set for you? Like you get up early and first thing you do is, you know. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll back up for a second. Let me explain what I do since uh, now I know most of your people might be new. As an assistant director, my job is to, to, in prep, I schedule the movie. Hours. My first thing is to take the script. I break it down into a program called Movie Magic and I schedule the movie. So my job in prep is to not only schedule the rehearsals and the tests and meetings, and all the and coordinate the prep of the film. I schedule the movie. I put the, together what's called a one-line schedule, and that is the schedule of the film. And that will change because you'll be throwing curveballs as you just explained. The biggest one, 
to you. Uh, so you're constantly, it's a, an evolving process. You're constantly, an actor suddenly can't come or whatever. The location suddenly isn't available. I can go on and on. Storm, rain, weather, whatever. So you're constantly having to adapt to the schedule, but that's so I'm in charge of the schedule. So my day-to-day is the first thing is that when I we get to set, we create the schedule, then we have to break it down on a daily basis. For me, as a first AD, I, I'm, I'm that guy that gets there an hour earlier than anyone, even though I'm not supposed to get there till crew call. I got to get there early. I, I like walking the set when it's quiet, figuring my day out, getting the boards out, whatever we have, any, any kind of uh, assets we have that day that we're working with, having conversations with the crew as they're coming in. And so I'm ready for the, the day. And I have a staff. I've uh, usually two second ADs, a second key second AD who's kind of the, I call them the best boy AD. Most of you know what a best boy is in the grip and electric world. They're the guys that are behind the scenes making sure that everything is on set and there for the key grip to run the set. And the same thing with the gaffer. So for me, my second AD is back in base camp, keeping the machine running, funneling to me what I need and the, the shoot needs for the day. So I'm on the set and my job is to run the set. And that is to make sure that I'm coordinating with my staff and cast getting ready, background getting ready, make sure everyone had gotten everything done, special effects, props, and everyone's informed. And as soon as the crew get there, I do what's called a safety meeting. I was joking at the beginning of it. And I have a safety meeting. And it's important because I'm the, the last word of safety. At the end of the day, I am the most responsible person for safety. So whenever you hear that something tragic happened on a set, and a lot of times you know the first AD's name, is because we are. It's our responsibility to make sure the crew is safe. Mm-hmm. So I have what's called a safety meeting. We go over the safety issues of the day. It could be anything from wear sunscreen to dealing with an explosion or special effects or stunts or whatever, make sure everyone's clear. And then also in that meeting, I lay out the plan for the day. And so everyone is like, oh, that's cool. Now I know we're going to do this, this, this first. And, and a lot of times the guys come to me, you know what? If you could switch this over, I can give me more time to do whatever rigging. And and that's so the day flows that way. And a lot of times we'll make decisions based on information I've given them. And then as the day progresses, my job is then also to run set all the way down to I'm the guy that says rolling, lock it up, rolling, action, cut the whole thing with the for the director. Um, I'm not the guy sitting behind the monitor. I'll always look at the monitor because I always know what's going on. I'm typically the guy that's right in the meat of it all. At the end of the day, if I'm not as dirty as the rest of the crew, then I have not done my job, which a lot of ADs don't. They like sitting behind the monitor and let the seconds get dirty and the PAs get dirty. I did a movie called Horse Soldiers, came out as 12 Strong with Chris Hemsworth. Mm-hmm. And we did tons and tons of battle sequences, and we used this stuff called Black Bone. And it's a dust. It's a black dust that looked like an explosion happened and the, the arch will laid down. And there's just tons of it. And by the end of the day, everyone is just on the set. The people are in the midst of mix of the set, just covered in black soot, covered in color. I mean, every, every inch of you is just covered in the stuff. And it, we have pictures where me, the DP, and the guys who are right in the mix are just covered in black soot because I just won't, <laughs> I won't do that. You know, I won't yeah. sit behind monitor. And, I, you know, I always said my favorite story as an AD was I was working on a movie called The Jungle Book for Disney. And there's our little boy, it was Neil Seddy. He was our actor. The way we shot that movie was we did motion capture. We built out animation files. We shot the movie virtually. And then we had to reshoot every virtual shot practically with the boy in the costume on a blue screen stage and whatever he interacted with, we built grass, trees, whatever. And we put elements on him. So a lot of time he was in rain, he was in whatever. And the first set we have, believe it or not, if you, if you saw the movie, he's in a, in a riverbed and it's muddy and these buffaloes, oh, buffaloes, yeah. and mm-hmm. he's just getting splattered with mud. So John's like, I want to build a 40 foot long mud pit. 
thick mud pit the kid's got to be in. And I want people, uh, we had things to shoot mud up at him as if the Buffalo, we had these guys running by him to interact with, with these poles to interact. So he's interacting with the stampede and he's getting mud and he comes out and this kid's from New York and he gets out and he gets in the mud and he's crying, it's cold, it's yucky, I don't like it. And the makeup people is like, guys, he's got to be totally muddy. Just roll down a, a hill of mud. He's got to be muddy. And they're like doing this and this. I'm like, stop it, Dave. He's got to get muddy. He's got to get muddy. And everyone's like, but he's not. I said, get out of the tank. Everyone got out of the tank. I took my shoes off, rolled my pants up. And I'm in clothes, regular dresses and AD. I climb in the pit. And I said, pick up, I said, big two handfuls of mud. And I said, pick up mud. He's like, what? I said, kid, pick up mud. He does. I said, throw it at me. He's like, what? I said, throw the mud at me. So he throws a little bit at me in my shirt. And I took one and threw right in his face. <laughs> what are we doing? I said, we're having a mud fight. And he's <laughs> laughing and we just get totally, but I was covered in, just covered in mud. John is looking at me like, what the hell? And it comes out. He's like, what the hell was that? And he's like, sometimes you got to get in the mud with the kid, John. Sometimes you got to get in the mud. And after that, I made a deal with him. I said, whenever you are uncomfortable, I will be uncomfortable. So whenever it rained on him, I had them build a section of the stage where it rained and I, where I would stand. And I built a little, they built me a little like floor. <laughs> cat, cat and I literally would rain on me. If he was in rain, it would rain on me. So I would do my job in the rain with him. So I said, if you're wet, I'll be wet. And then on the it, I was like, damn. Yeah. I, I love hearing stories when you, when you have, you know, a director or something where it's like, you know, obviously as an actor, it's like, it's hard sometimes because you, you're in that situation. You're like, I don't want to complain, but I am it's freezing cold and nobody yeah. else knows because they're all in their parkas and, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. Dave, do you do that with sex scenes too? Hey, if they're having sex, <laughs> I'm having sex. All right. I want a separate spot that you can build for me. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to see the footage of him running down the uh, down the mud pit with guys smacking him with sticks. Though, <laughs> go behind the scene. Go the, uh, behind. I think that sequence is in the behind the scene. Is it awesome? Well, I'm gonna check go that out. Behind the making of Jungle Book. I, I almost positive that sequence is in the. Um, in oh yeah, I remember the one where uh, wasn't it like John is in the water being like blue and stuff and yeah. splashing the yeah, kids and was, stuff like that. that. Was the end of the schedule is one of the last oh, things yeah. we shot, and we built a tank in a parking lot. And most of the time, I was in the water with him, or the divers were in the water with. Him. And John at one point was like, the kid was struggling with acting to a, a puppet head. And finally, and John would always do the off camera with him because John's the best actor, obviously, in the whole group. So. One point, John's like, I think I can get in the water with him and just do that, be blue. And he did. And it was, and he loved it. And it was really warm. And he was, he said he was happier in the water than outside, John. At one point, John got in the mud with him. At one point, yeah. after seeing John, at one point, we were racing to get a shot. And John literally turned around. John, same thing, rolled his pants up and jumped in the mud wall. So, was, so uh, that's where I love Favreau. He, he'll, he'll do the, he'll, he's like me. Most of the time, he'll be on the monitor, but he'll get in there just like anyone else. You taught him well. <laughs> so what's a what's an experience uh that's kind of the opposite where it was just you were like oh man everything's just running like this is just going smooth and i haven't had to come up against a lot of problems or anything you have you had any of those <laughs> oh. a whole movie no i mean you're always gonna have you right, right i mean 
there have been movies that have been, you know, easier that went fairly well. I mean, believe it or not, I did A Quiet Place 2, which unfortunately was supposed to come out and now it's coming out in September. And that one, it had its challenges and it was a complicated film to do. It actually went really, really well. And mm -hmm. it was one of those films we came in on schedule. I mean, a little, actually, take that back. We were like two days over schedule and only simply because we added some stuff and they gave us extra days to do it. So it wasn't because we failed in any way. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of nice to be on a schedule, a movie like that. And then I, um, 12 Strong, had its challenges. Hard movie, 43-day schedule, tight schedule. And we that movie became at 43 days. And so there were a couple of times, yeah, I mean, most of the time, listen, you're going to fall behind because of a ton of... Jungle Cruise was hard because we had so many weather issues because we shot in Atlanta and it was all, we were always getting shut down for rain and lightning. As soon as it lightnings there, you have to shut everything down for a half hour. And every time a lightning strike hits within a certain distance from the set, you got to shut down for another half hour. You got to re-trigger the clock. Oh, yeah. So it's, there were, when those lightning storms go, they go on for like two hours. And so then eventually it's like, let's just go home. And so we got shut down so much for lightning there because they have so much lightning on these coast. That's crazy. So, you said it. your job is kind of working with the schedule. When you're talking schedule and film, when you hit that 10th hour, you're scratching overtime for a lot of people. So really, you're kind of managing budget things too, I think, right? Yeah, it's my day. It's, you know, it's my responsibility to lay out. These are the days I think we get it between 10 and 12 hours. 12 hours is typically your, where you're like, you don't want to go past that. After 12 hours, two reasons. One, it gets expensive. But second, it's just after 12 hours, you hit a point of no return with the crew. I mean, it's like, it just they, you start losing them, you know, and it's just, and it becomes unsafe. And, um, you know, 14 hours was after 14 is out to me, in my opinion, unless you absolutely have to, there's no reason to do that. And we used to do it all the time. It used to, in the, old, in the olden days, I mean, you go 17, 18, 19 hours, no one blanked. And the problem is it's just not safe. I actually meant to say the point of diminishing returns, what I meant to say with the crew, but it's, uh, so yeah, it is my responsibility. It's interesting. A lot of, like the movie I'm about to do, God willing, this ends and I can go do it. In Atlanta, the director came up. We there's a new thing. There's uh, called uh, ten hour continuous days, and what they do is you don't break for lunch. You feed people throughout the day. You can't, you, know, you hire staff to just funnel food to the crew all day long, and the caterers just have constant just food coming to set all day long. And you just do a ten hour day, but you can't work past ten hours. But you don't do the lunch break. And I love that because to me, a lunch break just kills you time wise. And I think at the end of the day, more people would rather. Say, okay, I'll give up my lunch break as long as as long as you really wrap 10 hours. If you do that and you're suddenly wrapping at 11 one day and 10 another day and 10 and a half another day, then it starts getting to the point where, okay, okay we're abusing it. So that's, I like that because lunch is hard. When you break for lunch, even though, yeah, it is people need a break, they need to stop. It's not just a half hour. It's usually an hour and a half. By the time you get everyone through the line, back to set, you know how it is, rebooting yeah. things. takes forever. It's like buffering. Then the crew, the hair cast have to go back to hair and make, uh, and you're really losing an hour and a half of your day, and the momentum is just shot. So a lot of directors and ADs are starting to adopt this. As long, and we always ask the crew first. We're like, are, is everyone, nine times out of 10, the crew are like, yeah, let's do it. If you promise we're really going to wrap in 10 So it's kind of mm -hmm. cool. So it's a cool way of really guaranteeing we're not going to do these abusive hours. And it's safer, in my opinion. And and the fact is, people eat more this way because it's constantly, they're like bringing trays of food out all day long. Yeah. I mean, grilled cheese sandwiches, soups, you know, it's like, you know. But uh -huh. you're probably paying for extra food is like five minutes of overtime, yeah. you know, exactly. or whatever, yeah. you know. So exactly. it's like, if we're saving one hour of one day going over, we, we've paid for all this extra food probably for the shoot. 
That's, you know, we're at a week. And just by the way, just so you know, I, for those who know the business, you're still paying the meal penalties. Because, you know, you get meal penalties after six hours. So you still pay the yeah. crew, still get the meal penalties. But the idea is that the, the meal penalties that you're paying them is offset by the lack of overtime. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that's the give and take with the crew, you know, yeah. so. Um, so and they get extra money and get to go home in 10 hours as opposed to 12 and having that break. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes uh, on set, uh, if Chad and I aren't sure exactly when the end is, we always try to like tell him, hey, it's going to be a little longer. That way, yep. when we wrap shorter, everyone's kind of got a great mentality about it. Versus always promising the shorter yeah. end, and then you end up going an hour later, and someone's like, oh, oh man, yeah. I thought we were going to be done. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime someone says right back there, it's like, oh, they better hit that. They shouldn't have said yeah. that. <laughs> they have now, everybody's already in going home mode. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, we forgot that one shot to get the alarm clock. <laughs> All right, everybody set up for the alarm clock shot. <laughs> you, uh, you get to work with a lot of different personalities and a wide range of, I guess. Do them right there. Characters. And, <laughs> uh, what would be some good tips on like, what are the good things that you see or the good traits that you see? What's a couple of things that we should really focus on as either a new person on set or as somebody that maybe we could just adjust to make the set more of a healthy environment. Well, it's a great, it's a great question. But the fact of the matter is, it is, it is a, it takes a village, you know, to, to pull from a political term. But it's um, a video village to be a video exact. Village, exactly. At the end of the day, it's like two people set the tone, in my opinion, on the set initially, the director and the AD. At the end of the day, and then the director of photography has a big impact as well. Fact of the matter is, when you're dealing with that many people, you're never going to get everybody on the same page. But what I've noticed is that if the director and the AD kind of set a tone, an even-keeled tone, a low-tempered tone, and a friendly tone, a family kind of tone, that the crew tend to wrap into it because they don't want, no one wants to be the asshole on the set. You know what I mean? And the first thing is that, listen, it's not always going to work out. I'm lucky because I am very picky now because I can turn work down because I get enough work and then God knock wood. There are directors I just won't work with and they're amazing directors. Don't get me wrong. They're amazing directors that they do amazing work. I just don't choose to work the way they work. And I just don't want at my age at this point in my career go to set and just constantly come on with a throbbing headache. Uh, so I can be picky. Not everyone can be picky though. So it's, uh, I think the first thing is I think everyone you have to really balance it how much you need to work versus are you willing to go through this kind of that kind of toxic environment that some some people really do create as a first AD and a director we don't want to create that toxicity an example I'm going to always go back to an example it's the best way for me to do it is I worked for 20 years with a director his name is Gary Marshall Mm -hmm. Gary passed away three years ago now Gary if you don't know him he was an amazingly successful television producer writer back in the day he uh, wrote way back in the Dick Van Dyke shows and all that stuff and then eventually went on to create Happy Days Mork and Mindy Laverne and Shirley The Odd Couple in the 70s and early 80s probably the most popular if not the most successful television producer of that period. Then he went on to direct film. He got into film and he did, uh, you know, movies like Flamingo Kid, uh, Overboard, Runaway Bride, Princess Diaries, mm-hmm. Pretty Woman, and go on and on. And I was lucky enough to join him in the early 90s, uh, around 94, uh, on a movie called Dear God. And then 
over a period of 20 years was his AD. I came and, came and went depending on my availability, but I, he was a consistent director I liked working with. And the reason being is he was were like working with grandpa and he was the sweetest, nicest guy. He had a funny humor about him. And he was one of these guys that was so loyal to a fault. He, he, for instance, he had what we call fogs, friends of Gary or family of Gary, fogs. <laughs> and they were actors, the actors we had to put in the movie. And he would come to me, I'm about to do my impression of Gary Marshall. He goes, oh, Dave, you know, Herbie's coming tomorrow. He's one of my fives. We got to get him a part. He's a bit of a pain in the ass, but find him a good part. We'll get it, make it work. It'll be fun. You know, and I'll be like, nope, we'll take Gary <laughs> Herb's coming. That's a that dead part? on Gary, though. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard Gary in a while, and that sounded just like him. <laughs> you know, Penny Marshall, who's sister, she goes, hey, Vegas, Penny's coming to visit. She's in a bad mood, so just bring her that service and she'll be fine. I'll be like, oh. <laughs> 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 anyway, the, Gary was the sweetest, nice man in the set, and I then had to adapt with Gary. I didn't AD the same way with Gary. If I ever got in a bad mood, it would bother him. He would be bothered. He would be upset that I was upset and he didn't like it. And not, he wasn't angry with me. He felt bad. And he, and I could see that I could not do that with him. I could not, I had to really mask any kind of anger or I couldn't get hot. He never did. What happened was the crew would just kind of fall into that same pattern because he was like grandpa. So you, how do you act around your grandpa's differently than you do around your spouse? You know, you know, so it was an interesting kind of study of how the set is kind of tempered by the leaders, if you may. When you're a director or when you're an assistant director or something, you're you're the leader of the pack a little bit, you know, and, and your morale. Yeah. Uh, like the people feed off that, you know. So kind of like what you're saying, if you, if film sets are mostly problems and yeah. you're just coming up with solutions, yeah. you know, and, and if you are the leader of that pack and you're seeing all these problems and you start to like crumble and, and lose it and, you know, take that out on everyone else, well, that just, you know, everyone starts to do that then. Exactly. You know, because yeah. it becomes this trickle-down effect and then, and then you really don't get a success successful set in my opinion you don't you don't get a successful product most of the time Absolutely. i think that's highly valuable info of just like making sure that you're always trying to produce the best mentality to the people that are running the show absolutely yeah you know well it's like did you guys did you guys all see 1917 yeah like i keep thinking about like towards towards the end you know kind of the scene that's showing the trailer when he's like running down the line and all that and it's like when he's trying to make his way through that, you see him run into the general that's sitting there and just like, all right, guys, we're going over. We're doing it. You know, and they're probably just as scared as the next guy that he runs into who's like babbling and crying on the ground and can't do anything about it. like he just shut down, you know, and it's like the difference of those two of like. I'm sure the guys that have that other general are like, well, I know we're in this situation, but he feels confident. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I know we got to do it. You know, like, I'm probably going to die, but I'm going to go into the, I'm going to die for my country. And, you know, it's like that kind of stuff on a set. It's like, if you're like, okay, our first AD and director don't know that we're like having major troubles and grip over here. You know, once they kind of go, yeah. you know, friggin' forget it. You know, they don't care. You know, so it's like that balance of, you know, not falling apart, but being easy, but not, you know, but knowing that, hey, there's a problem to handle, but we don't need to fall apart about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's a delicate balance that probably is hard for people. And like you said, when you're talking about budgets like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean or something where an extra day is, you know, a lot of money, <laughs> yeah. you know, because you're not hitting something. No, it's, you know. it's, one of my people, when I was doing The Quiet Place with John, um, 
Trzinski, who I love, by the way, you know, we were in a race and everyone was, you know how it, eventually what happens when everyone starts getting into their own kind of pace and John's like, we got to make the video and everyone's kind of in this race. And at one point I just could tell I was, lo- I was losing control of the set and everyone was kind of becoming a little chaotic and I just stopped everything. Everyone just stopped. Everyone come on over and I got everyone back on the same page. I said, let's get back on the same page because you're all going 50 different directions. And Turn to him and he said, thanks for doing that. I said, well, John, the one piece of advice I'll give you is sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. And I said, and that's always been my mentality is my, with my job. Sometimes you got to stop everyone, get everyone back. Because if you keep just going and going and going and going, eventually what happens is people don't know they're not listening to you. And one guy's thinks, thinking we're doing this and camera department's racing because they were just told they're changing a lens. And then the group is like, well, I wish someone told me that. And, you know, and I go on and on. So it's, um, you know, so sometimes you got to stop and, you know, take you take a breath because it's always going to get done. It's going to get done somehow or another. It may not get done today. If we don't make it, we don't. We'll figure it out. We'll get it done. But it always gets done. So when you're working with 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 picking your directors, as you were talking about picking, is there something in general that you're kind of looking for, or is it just kind of trying to see if you guys are vibing on the same page, or you know, like what are you kind of looking for in a director moving forward? you know, to be like, yep, I'm going to spend the next year with you working on this thing or whatever? That's a good question. Like, um, the next one we're going to do is for Marvel and Sony and Marvel. And I don't want to put it down. I love Marvel. I think they're great. It just wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't really looking to work for Marvel, to be quite frank with you. I had this misconception that they were just this kind of big factory just pumping out. So I was like, oh, I don't know. And then the producer said, I want you to meet and Sky, I actually Skyped with him, John Watts, who's the director of the I'm going to be working with. And I didn't know him from Beans, and I got him on the, and as soon as I started talking to him, I was like, I want to work with this guy, because he was very clear, concise about what he wanted. I can tell he's one of these guys that makes up his mind, and he's a good leader with respect to the information given and decision-making. But I also really appreciated the, one of the first things he wanted to talk about was the tone and temperament of the set. And he said, listen, this is probably going to be the last of this series of movies that I'm going to do for them. So I really want to make this the best experience for everybody across the board, not just the actors, not just us, but everybody. And he goes, so I really want to think about how to run the set and ways we can make this a better experience for everybody. And, and it was really refreshing to see that because a lot of directors aren't really that concerned with that. They're you know, more concerned with uh, efficiency and rightfully so they should be. But I really like, so, it, so with John, I immediately said yes to the film and thank God he said yes to me first, but I, you know, it's um, because I liked the fact that he was, considerate of the fact that that's part of it, you know, the way you uh, approach the set and approach the crew and, and, and the, uh, the temperament. And so I thought that was great. So I do look at that. Um, and I, I usually can tell, as most of us can, without someone, sometimes they don't even have to say much and I can tell immediately, this just isn't going to work. And there were, I met with this one director and he's popular, amazing work and everything. And I met with him and I just immediately knew he, he and I were probably just not going to be the right mix. And I just turned it, he wanted me and I turned it down because I just didn't want to go there. And I don't know why, there was nothing to pinpoint it. It just was like, so sometimes it's just a feeling. It's just a, you know, but I think we all have that. We all have the ability to say, you know, okay, this isn't, this isn't really. So sometimes I just use my gut instinct and others, but more importantly, as long as they, and I really want to like the project. Ben Solo is a great example. I came in to be on a second unit on Tropic Thunder, and I was brought in for like three days to do second unit. His first day on first unit had to leave, and it was way early in the movie when they were doing Hawaii stuff. And they said, we want to bump you up. And I was like, when I took the movie, all I heard was these bad things about Ben Stiller. And I said, you know, as long as I don't have anything to do with him, I'm fine. No, no, you won't. And then I said, no, I'm his first AD. Yeah. 
And, <laughs> you know, and I was like, I'm going to approach this with a fresh eye. I'm not going to get out of my head everything I've heard. And we had the best time. And I became his AD. And I, because I, he and I, I just, for some reason, clicked with him. And we still do. I still think he's the, amazing. He's hard at times. But, in it, but he's, I always look at him. He's, such, he's the hardest worker on set. And that's another thing I look for. He's he, he'll work as hard as the next person. You know what I mean? It's it's so mm-hmm. usually typically I don't like screamers. I don't like killers. Uh, and there's definitely those that have the reputation out there, and I just won't work with that. How, how's it been? I mean, obviously you worked on like Secret Life of Walter Mitty, right? Yeah. And then and then working with Krasinski, who I know is is in Quiet Place. You didn't do Quiet Place one. You just did the second one, right? Did the second one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's in it a little bit. How is it working kind of with a director that then has kind of a split focus of being an actor and a director? Do you get more fun responsibilities as a director kind of thing? Is that Yeah, you do. You, he, to, at that point, Ben was probably the better example because every movie I did with Ben, he was acting and acted in 95% of the movie. I did Tropic Thunder, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and then Zoolander 2. It was hard. And the very first thing, when we, Tropic Thunder was already kind of machine on its work. So I, it was my figuring Ben out kind of movie. Him figuring me out too, for that matter. And then I got to Secret Life of Walter Mitty and he said, I don't know how to do I always have this trouble with ADs and DPs and when I'm acting, directing. And, and I said, can I suggest something? He said, yeah. I said, let's you and I get your directing brain as organized as possible before we get to the shooting phase. So then you're you're comfortable enough to turn that off when you need to act because it's impossible to be doing both. It's, it's just mm-hmm. too hard. You know, it's, I, I couldn't imagine doing one of those jobs alone on both at the same time. So what we did is in prep, I literally scheduled out a period of time where I took stand-ins. I found stand-ins and we auditioned them so they, they could act and respond. And I brought them in, had them off book to the script so they can come on looking at sides, know the scenes. And we would go to every single location. If a set wasn't built, we would tape it out on the stage floor and work within that parameters. And we took the DP, me and Ben and these stand-ins and the script supervisor would go and we would lay the scene out. And he would block it out with the 5D, the DP would shoot it. We would gave it to his editor. The editor would edit the scene together. I would then create boards from that, as well as we had the video the, the, the oh, wow. footage of every single scene in the movie, other than big stunt sequences that we storyboarded, storyboarded and or prevised. But for mm-hmm. the most part, we prevised the entire movie with standards. And then I blocked in enough rehearsal time with the real cast, except for one who wasn't available. But for the most part, and we brought them in in the rehearsal week and we did the same thing. We went back now with the video, with the boards, and we re-blocked with the cast because sometimes they'll give you ideas. Mm -hmm. And we did it again. And we then recut boards and everything. So his boards were actually photo boards from that rehearsal period. And we had the video he could look at and refer to. And we answered a lot of questions for all the other departments. So when it came to set, we still rehearsed. We did everything you typically do. But he felt comfortable enough to say, I'm comfortable enough. I I can go go get my hair and makeup done. And you know, we're we're on a good path. And that's how we did both. That's actually how we did uh, Walter Mitty and and Zoolander 2. Nice. Oh, wow. One of the things I've noticed with John Krasinski's roles, you can just immediately connect with him i think and he's almost like the empathy guy so no matter what he's whether it's the office or jack ryan whatever role it is something about him kind of exudes this like empathy of always having this common experience with the people that he cares about and the care for others and i think that's something to be said too just like especially for ad roles with how you work 
you're able to connect with your crew and understand where they're at. Cause I know the sets that I've really ran away from is the ones that just lacked a sense of common respect. Do you feel like that's a big part of success in this? I do. I do. And the fact of the matter is uh, most of the directors I've worked with from Spielberg to John Favreau to John Krasinski to um, Gore Verbinski even. The, you know, Gore was tougher and Gore could be definitely hard to work with. But the one thing about Gore was he knew every single person's name. He knew what every single person did all the way down to the craft service. I mean, and he had an insane amount of respect for them and what they did. And he wasn't that guy that I... I, you know, yeah, you're that guy, but I really do your job. He wasn't that at all. John Krasinski, same thing. He He's definitely definitive of what he wants, and he's very clear on what he wants, and sometimes he'll change his mind everything. But he had such respect for everybody. Again, knew everybody's name, never stumbled on like, I mean, he had this just a tremendous amount of respect for everybody on the crew. And that's what I really liked about him. He, John Krasinski is identical, in my opinion, to the characters he plays. He's that guy. He's very empathetic. He's the sweetest, nicest guy you'll ever meet. He and Emily are two of my favorite people on the planet. I've done now two movies with Emily, Jungle Cruise and, and Quiet Place. And that's how I got it. I met him when he was, when he was, she was doing Jungle Cruise. And, um, and it, it translates because people trust him, he trusts them. And also it invites a collaborative partnership that can go anywhere. Like he's open. Like I swear to God, like anyone can walk up to him and get, what if we did this? How do you ever think about it? And he would accept it. He'd go like, hey, let me think about that. You know? And he would never like, why are you talking to me? He never did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, my st- biggest struggle was he was so open to talking to everyone. A lot of times like, ah, slow down. I, I really need shit going through me because they, they would go to him and bypass me. And I'm like, well, you got to let me know this shit, you know, if, especially if something's changing or so, uh, because there was such a comfort level with him, which I appreciated. And, um, you know, Favreau trusts everybody. I mean, he's like, he's because he surrounds himself with really super smart people, but there's a hundred percent clarity of what he wants. So there's never a confusion. He's so clear and concise of what he wants that he feels comfortable with you taking the ball and running with it. Uh, and John Krasinski is a lot, a lot the same, actually. I feel like those sets are always, they always run the best. Like you say, you know, someone could come up to John and be like, hey, I noticed this or thought about this and he would be open to that information because I've I've been on sets where someone had noticed a problem and gone up, and, you know, and it wasn't their position necessarily to like, hey, uh, what if we kind of switch this around? But I watched them go up to the director or the AD and they brought that problem up and the AD took that solution and then did not bring them on the next day. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. was kind of like, oh, that's not your place to tell me. But we went ahead and did it and it did help the set. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. There's, there's kind of a weird mentality because then you get scared as even an actor or a crew person to be like, oh, I saw an issue that could be an issue. I could save you time, but now I'm actually scared to tell you what that problem I've, is. I've had background actors walk up to me and go, can I tell you something? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Didn't yeah. know that. It's good to know. That helps me. You know? So you can't, you can't. Now go home. <laughs> Don't ever talk to me again. I definitely have had that experience to where a bigger shoot and, you know, I'm used to kind of that, you know, flow of, you know, we're all trying to get this thing done. We're all, you know, doing this. And if I'm, I guess I crossed the line to where I, you know, I'm out on the set with the director and the director's actually right here. I'm right yeah. here. We were in an open gas station actually. And they couldn't shut it down. And so like, we're trying to work around all this stuff. There was just a, just a massive noise that was going on. I'm like, you know, I leaned over. I was like, we're going to have to wait until he's like, he looked at me and said, why are you talking to me? Oh, that's stupid. And I remember just the feeling of just total loss of value. I think, you know, I was just like, I'm just a meat puppet really, you know, and just kind of here 
it is kind of perceiving like where they're at too. I think like this guy's busy. And so there's an AD there to help with that. And I remember just showing up and seeing that there was an AD on the shoot and being so relieved. I was like, yeah. oh yes, there's an AD. <laughs> like this is going to be so, you know, and like, it's just so much better, you know, when, when you have that layer of, and really you're kind of an advocate, I think a lot of the time too for the different departments. Yeah, it has to be. And you know, so many issues can come up and safety, you know, when you don't listen to the crew, the accidents happen, mistakes happen, and then it's a loss of time or a loss of life or injury, you know? So it's just like, you can't just let that happen. You know? These are the skills that are kind of at the core of being successful in anything you do. I mean, right. it applies to film, it applies to being a creative, but it's also just, how do you be a friend, you know? And how do you learn to be empathetic and understand where people are? So if you were to go back, kind of when you were beginning, like what advice would you give yourself walking into it? And from what you know now, like what would you say to a younger, a younger Dave? That's a great question. I think the one thing with me is, I, listen, I'm blessed. I'm, I've been the luckiest guy on the planet with respect to the career I've had and, uh, and still have and people I get to work with. Um, but one thing that, in all fairness, because the generation I came up in filmmaking had changed while I was doing this, was that I, I think that I didn't spend enough time on what I really wanted. Directing was my passion, still is my passion, but I got so caught up in ADing and that I, part, part of me knew when I was a second AD that I didn't want to be a first AD, believe it or not, because I knew that if I did it, and don't get me wrong, this is not a pat on the back. This is just my nature that I'd be really good. I, I don't approach a job half-assed at all. If I'm going to do a job, I'm going to do it a thousand percent. And so, and I knew that I would end up working with the big directors. And and the problem was there's a blessing and a curse to that. The blessing is that obviously I get to do it and I make some good money. I can make a great living. The curse is that you're always like taking the next step and you're not stopping to do my own thing and to concentrate on my own career, my directing. And I'm not suggesting I'm too old for that, but I am, you know, I'm 55. So I, I'm getting to a point where they're not looking at, especially in this generation, they're not looking at guys my age for the roles of director. And unfortunately that I should, I kind of wish I spent a little more time and energy on that. And so if I tell people, Everyone has to make money and I get that. We all have to make a living. We have to pay the bills and families and the such. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I wish I could sit back and afford myself the time. I did, you know, I was lucky enough to do the thing I did with the guys in Kansas City. So I did at times do that and I really enjoyed it and I didn't sacrifice. And I, I wish I did a little more of that and concentrate on my dream. Now, with that said, when I started in the business, and I shot my first short film. I had to raise like $20,000 for the short film because I had to rent 35 millimeter camera. I had to buy film, process film, find it avid that someone would be nice enough to help me work on. And it was not easy because none of this existed. None of this uh, digital filmmaking and editing on your laptop existed back then. Again, I think the younger self, I would have said, get to know that stuff and get comfortable with it as I grew. I should have done that a little bit more as well. Listen, I'm not... To all, I'm still doing it. I'm pushing a project with the Hill to direct right now, and I'm spending some time on that. So I think that's the thing is follow your passion. Don't be afraid to follow your passion while you're trying to make a living at this. Something uh, I wanted to ask uh, kind of along that same same subject. Uh, like you said, you're you're kind of directing something now, or you you are in the process of it? It's a project I'm pushing up the Hill, you know? Okay. Trying to, yeah. Is there ever a time because you are at a place in your life where you can turn things down, and, and is there something that you're like, you know what, I can take this on. It's not going to pay me, but it's just going to get that creative flow. It's going to yeah. kind of bring me back. Is, do you do that often? No, I don't do it often enough. That's the point. And I should. I should stop 
And ironically, we're all stopped now. And I wish that we all could be together doing the other guy. I wish we could be shooting something right now. But it's um. Yeah. But point being is that I don't. But I'm starting to teach myself to not be afraid to. If someone approaches me, listen, it's not about money with me. You know, I make fine money. I'm good money wise. So for me, that if someone comes up with a project that I really like and I want to be part of. Money is the least of my issues when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I just have to, I have to put myself out there a little more. Mm -hmm. My fear with the industry is to get off topic for a moment, just talking about directing and what the thing I wanted to do or still want to do is that I do fear with the industry that the, the role of director has been diminished, in my opinion, to almost a job that's become one of the most disposable jobs on the set. And what I mean by that is that there used to be a real art to directing with respect to the education you had to get to that job. And, yeah. you know, and filmmakers were bred out of film schools and, you know, they, they made their own films. And, and the problem now, in my opinion, and again, I don't want to say it's 100% a problem because many actors who become directors have become hugely successful and talented directors. So I'm not suggesting you can't come from other avenues, but now it just seems to me that they're always looking for the next wonder thing that came out of YouTube or, or some actor who insists they... What I do have a problem with is everyone... I was a production designer for seven years. Uh, now I guess I should direct. I was an editor. I guess I should direct. I was a writer. I guess I should direct. I was an actor. I guess should, everyone, for some reason now, suddenly I was like, when did the, the directing become the next step to everyone's job? And... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a problem. And I'm not suggesting we're not creating great product, but now the problem is people aren't looking for directors that have an education direct. And ironically, going to my job as an assistant director is that I'm an assistant director. For some reason, somewhere down the line, assistant directors were told, yeah, where you really should go is become UPMs and line producers. I'm like, but I'm not an assistant producer. I'm an assistant director. I have yeah. literally been educated under the greatest director's on the planet, bar none. I mean, I have been. I'm a sponge. And I'm a creative team with, and also a logistics team to the director. There's no one that knows that. But for some reason, assistant directors have gotten this kind of, eh, you're not really directors. You're, you should be a producer. That's really mm-hmm. what Franks would like. And it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that even those people that are getting the education, they can't get the work anymore. And again, I do not want to suggest that people that are directing don't have it the right to, everyone should have the right to direct if that's what you want to do. I just worry that the industry is not looking for talent. Now, Godspeed, the, this past year was the first year in a long time that I looked at the crop of films that came out and was like, ah, thank God, there's some yeah. really talented original stuff out there. You know, so. mm-hmm. Well, there was times where you were kind of telling uh, Chad and myself, you know, that the director you were working with didn't really have the connection with the actors that they needed. And you kind of had to step in and and take over that role a little bit of working with the actors. And it did, it happens. You, you know, what happens is like a producer will find a director and say, Oh, he he did this really cool commercial with visual effects and special effects. And he's got this really Mm -hmm. good eye for that. And you know, he doesn't really know story and script. He doesn't really know the actors never really dealt with actors before, but we can, we'll, we'll fill that, we'll fill that gap and we'll hire a really good AD and a really good DP and that those people, will kind of fill that gap. And what happens is this vacuum is created because the director leaves these holes and other people jump into it and it never allows the director to grow into that position because everyone's expected to just do it. And the director's like, yeah, you do that. You do that. Yeah. So whenever it dealt with the cast, this director, I'm not going to name him, but this director would be like, yeah, you go talk to him. You go talk to that actor. You go talk. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, like in script yeah. meeting, I would, get, I would get called down to script meetings with the producers and the director and the actors and I'm like, why am I here? I'm an, I'm an AD. And the, and the actor, at one point, the actor looked at me and he's like, and a big, gigantic actor, 
And he's like, I've never had more conversations with the first AD in my life about script. And he goes, <laughs> like, and he goes, you're, but I like it because you know what you're talking about. And again, I'm not patting myself on the back. It's more of a criticism where we're going. People are like, I'm willing to sacrifice this part of that job to get this guy to do it because he did something really, or he or she did something really cool. Again, I'm not suggesting that there aren't some talented people coming from all avenues of the industry and it's, and they should be able to do that. But for some reason, directing became this next step to everyone's job. And it just, it's kind of, to me, disappointing. Well, it almost feels like studios also are, uh, they're pushing to find directors that are just going to fall in line. Yeah, they, they also know that one direct, I, I met with Jerry Bruck, I'm saying, I met with Jerry Bruckheimer and we were talking and he said, he goes, we're not going to hire someone like you. Not that you're not talented, not we don't trust you. It's, you're not moldable. And I'm like, huh? And he's like, you're not moldable. And he, and he made a good point. I love working with Jerry. Don't get me wrong at all. But he made a good point that the studio system, they want directors that they can, they're a little more malleable, if you may, in their yeah. creative and that they can guide up and they can foster relationships with and everything. And I get it. I get mm-hmm. it. Because again, some great directors came up that way. Great directors came up that way. But I think that it was his point was that I'm so, you know, a guy my age, knows what I'm doing, very confident in what I'm doing, and I'm not as malleable to a studio or to marketing people, whomever is going to be mm-hmm. kind of part of that molding process of the creative. So so as far as working on a big budget thing that has, you know, its perks and, and fun stuff and things like that, and working on something that's definitely a lot smaller, a lot smaller budget, a lot less moving parts, what in general, you know, kind of tends to be more either creative fulfilling or just like the journey, you know, because I could see where it's like, sometimes it's like, you know what, we're on set, we have great catering, it's, we have top-notch actors and union people and all this stuff. And then, but then sometimes it's like, well, yeah, we're kind of, you know, making the thing and it's super cheap, but, you know, we don't have the the studio that we're really having to worry about or things and we can kind of, maybe not the time to play with things, but you have, you know, some, some things like that. Just, is there kind of a preference? I'm going to tell, I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm not just saying this because you both are sitting on the screen here. It's two of my favorite experiences in this industry was my two films I directed. And again, it wasn't even about me directing. It was the experience. I love the smaller film experience because everyone just becomes just one mini team just out there to create something and you just have fun. You just have fun. I did, my first thing I did was call, it was a movie called The Calm Sasquatch. And it was a $100,000 budget. We shot back in 2002, I think. And it was a long time ago. And um, I got some Neil McDonough, who was a wonderful actor, a good buddy of mine. He was kind enough to come do it. Gary Marshall actually played a part in it. And other than that, I did kind of similar to what I did with you guys. I went out and I wanted to find newcomers to play the comedy roles. And it was about a group of knuckleheads going to look for Bigfoot. And we shot up a bit. And I said, I want to go up to Big Bear. I want to go camping with all of you for 10 days. <laughs> and I want to shoot the whole movie in 10 days. And literally, everyone, cabins, and, and every night I had, and I had a catering company come up, and they cooked breakfast for everyone. And we got up to this campsite, and we had breakfast waiting for everyone. Then he cooked us lunch, and then he went down, and he had a big dinner waiting for everyone when we got back down. And they started the bonfire, and, you know, we had, every, every cabin had beers and stocked up in the fridges. And, and we had, it was a fun experience, and we were making a really funny and fun project. And it was, and it, my favorite day was Neil McDonough, who was my biggest actor in the movie, comes up to me at the first day, and he's at his cabin, and they said, Neil wants to talk to you, and I walk over, and he's sitting there, and I'm like, oh, God, is he going to quit on me? And he said, so I got to talk to you. And I'm like, what? He said, so this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I'm like, 
oh, shit. I really thought I was going to get a star on lead. And I'm like, uh, is there anything I can do? He goes, no. He goes, this is so much better. And I'm like, oh, the best time ever. You're like, ah, you actors yeah. always trying to. And it was the best thing ever. It was the best thing because he just loved the temperament. And everyone just really dove in and worked their asses mm-hmm. off. And same with and we had a tiny little our little tiny little crew that did uh, horror film, and it was it was fun to create and to collaborate and sit around a table and what if we did it what if we did this and that was a little mm-hmm. less structured. I think my biggest issue with that film was it was just constantly this. Like, well, how about if the movie's this? How about if the movie we couldn't never yeah. the boys and I mm-hmm. the brothers and I we just could never really come up with. That's why the failure of the film was that, in my opinion. With that said, the experience was great. Yeah, um, and I loved. I did a tiny little thing for Zach Graff big actor and everything, but he did this $5 million little dollar little short. I'm sorry, film. Um, it was a film. It was called Wish I Was Here. And he was mm-hmm. the one who raised the money on Kickstarter to do. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. A mm-hmm. little project. And he said, would you do this? And I met him on Skype like this. And I said, I met him and I really liked him. I'm like, yeah, I actually would do this. And I did it with him and I, we had a ball. Because everyone time to have, we didn't have money, we had no money, and but he got mm-hmm. he had a lot of great actors that came in. We had to wing it a lot of times. We had to make the schedule. It was a twenty five day schedule. It was a really short schedule. So I love doing those kind of films. I'm not suggesting that I haven't done big films that I've loved equally, but mm-hmm. sometimes when they're lower budgeted, that everyone kind of accepts. Okay, this is what we have, and we're just going to mm-hmm. power through and make it work. As opposed to big budgeted things, they're kind of ah, this actor doesn't want to work that actor. I have to check mm-hmm. this out of this location. And there's a thousand problems that are more about money than they are about actually well, making it. And you kind of build a familial uh, relationship with a lot of people when you're working with a smaller cast and things like that, which I love. That's always kind of my favorite thing is I know the people that most of the time when I'm work on a film or, you know, a smaller budget commercial set or something like that, I'm usually walking away with like really close friends and family and stuff like that. And it always mm-hmm. feels better. Absolutely. So are you one of those directors that you're like, all right, <laughs> This movie's got to have a Sasquatch. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big well, my favorite, my favorite thing in that movie was the goofy, stupid movie. I'll send you guys. It was so stupid, but so much fun. And it was one of those. It was like I always tell people, get really shit faced when you watch this movie. So, uh, and that movie was we had to shoot Bigfoot. We had. I'm just gonna spoil alert. He's in the movie. And <laughs> he's, he's blurry though. Doug White, who's very famous, Doug White owns all the like high-end creature costumes. And, oh, uh-huh. and he, I somehow or another got in with him and he said, he loved the project. And he's like, I'm going to lend you my big, I'll send it up to you guys, the Bigfoot guy, his Bigfoot costume, which was using for every, by everybody. I'm like, oh my yeah. God, we have Doug White. And it was insane. So <laughs> he sends it up and I have a customer, everything dealing with it. And we have it shipped up the day before. So I didn't have it on set until we absolutely needed it. And we had an actor, gigantic actor I cast, to play Bigfoot. And he calls in sick. The night before, calls in sick. And next day, I get to set and the producer's like, what's it, whatever his name was, is not available. He's sick. And I'm like, shit. I said, there was no one on our crew, not no one that was big enough to play this part. I said, dude, you got to find me a Bigfoot. And he... <laughs> He, he had to go run down and get coffees for everyone. There's a little coffee shop, like a like up in this in Big Bear, a little cabin. Yeah. He goes in, walks. He goes, dude. He goes, I walk into this coffee shop, and right in front of me is this gigantic over guy. I mean, just tall, big. Yeah. And his name is Terry. And he said, taps him on the shoulder. He goes, Can I buy a cup of coffee? And he goes, Sure. And he goes, there he goes, you want to come up? You want to be in a movie? Need you for two days? He goes, what do you pay? And it was like $100 a day. And he's like, I can make $200. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> comes up, 
First day, I'm like, oh, thank God, we're going to shoot after lunch our first Bigfoot scene. And I need, I need him to be in the sequence on this rock, just kind of intimidating. And they're going to see Bigfoot for the first time. And, <laughs> and long story short, I'm on the rock planning. Everyone's eating lunch. And the, my AD starts, he's over the side going, what? What are we talking about? What are you I'm like, what's the matter? He goes, don't worry about it. I'm like, what's the no, Something's wrong. Like, you can't find Terry. I'm like, what do you mean you can't find Terry? He's like, he's in the Bigfoot costume. And I'm like, wait a minute, you lost Terry in the Bigfoot costume? Yes. His car is gone. He's gone. We're like, he stole the Bigfoot car. Like, holy fuck. Oh my God. It's like a $300,000 costume. It's three times the whole budget of my movie. I'm like, oh my God. Now literally we're all shitting ourselves. <laughs> 10 minutes before lunch is ending, his car putters up. He's in this little like, like Pinto or something like this big guy in a tiny little car. Putters up. And he's in the costume and he's cracking up. He gets out, he's laughing. And you're not going to believe what I just did. We're like, where were you? He was like, and they had a Burger King down in their village. And you know, I thought it'd be funny to drive through Burger King dressed as big. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> he's laughing. And I'm like, started noticing something. I said, Terry, do you do any other stuff? He goes, yeah, I might have met a buddy of mine at Burger King. And he had a little something for me. And I'm like, he's so stoned. There he is. Oh, no. Literally, he's getting, he's oh, like man. stumbling. I'm like, oh my God, Bigfoot is actually stoned. But, I mean, stoned. I mean, like, could not, he was like swaying when he said, that's why I had to shoot with a stoned Bigfoot. It was a fun. That's why he's oh always God. stumbling around the rocks and stuff. I just imagine that uh, if that if he would have run off with it, then your movie about finding Bigfoot turns into a documentary about finding the guy who stole your Bigfoot out. I immediately was like, this is great. You have the finding, bit, finding Sasquatch, but it's about finding the guy who took the Sasquatch costume. Oh, that's, that's so good. Well, that's all, that, everything about what you're talking about right now is kind of a reoccurring discussion a little bit on, nightmare of yours <laughs> <laughs> but like you didn't make a lot of money on that or any i don't know the story yeah. itself yeah <laughs> but the story itself it's like at one point you just got to make some stories you know like yeah. you gotta have some stories to tell around the table with <laughs> yeah, the boys or whatever you know <laughs> So, you gotta go you, find a ghost in the bathroom and let him scratch your exactly balls. You know what I'm saying? You ain't living. You ain't living in town. <laughs> Just this idea of balancing. How do you balance your thing that got you into all this? You know, your passion, the thing that you are, the thing that drives you. You know, as professionals, you know, we have to figure out a way to make enough money doing this that we can be available for the next job. Or you know, like as a sound guy, I would have to you know find that location, shoot for a commercial or whatever. But the idea of the passion or the obsession really we all kind of have this drive this what people would call workaholic you know we just want to be the best or we want to be good you know and do the thing how do you see this balance of on one side i'm making money and i have to make money but i also need to protect this passion for me personally it was composing i was doing composing for a long time and then you know more and more ads then all of a sudden it just started to become a job and music for me was everything that got me into it and so that turned into a job to where now every time I see a piano or an instrument, I think work, you know, and yeah. I don't want to do it. So that freaked me. I was like, if I lose that passion, then I've got nothing, you know, nothing left. So mm -hmm. what am I going to do? So I quit playing music completely for about four months. And yeah. I was just like, I can't do it. So like, where is that balance? How do you find your Sasquatch, Dave? Don't look if I was Sasquatch. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. No, there's, and there's, I wish there was a silver bullet to that. My only advice would be is, you just have to, because the fact of the matter is, my example for this is my brother, Jack. 
he is not in the movie industry. He's actually in golf. He was an ex- extraordinary golfer, never was good enough to actually play as a pro, but he wanted his career to be in golf. So he was, and he said, I want to move to San Diego and I want to work for Tory Pines. And he ended up working for a couple of uh, clubs down there and eventually worked for Tory Pines, which is an extraordinary, amazing golf course. And ironically, same thing happened to him. He's like, on my days off, I hated playing golf because I just was like, on my day off, the last place I want to go is back to Torrey Pines to play golf. And he said he realized his passion was now work. And he quit. He got into real estate. So now he loves playing golf again. Now, I'm not suggesting you quit because not all of us have the luxury of quitting and moving on. Film with me is like, as an AD, my problem is, is less about not wanting to do that, to do my passion because I'm, because I'm always working on some kind of project for myself. I'm always trying to put something up while I'm doing it. I think for me, it's more about time. I just don't, I don't afford myself the time to take to push my own projects you know, and, and really work on my own projects. And I think I need to do that. And that's one thing I've got to teach myself, even at my age. So for you is that you just have to always find time in your day to make sure that you don't lose that passion because it is your job. And it's hard. It's a hard one for you, especially because you're absolutely right. Sometimes when it's work, the last thing I want to do is, okay, I just dealt with music all day long. Now I got to, you know. And so I, my thing was I would write. When I did Pirates 2 and 3, I wrote two screenplays. And I would go home and I would write while, and have a glass of wine and just write. And I finished two screenplays while I was doing those movies. And I was like, how the hell do you find time to do that? I'm like, I needed to. I needed to turn my brain off logistically and be creative and write. So I found an outlet. And, and even though I didn't want I didn't want to think movies, I just said, I, and it became habitual for me. So I just made sure I locked in time every day. And it was only an hour a day. And I would write. And I said, that's what I'm going to do for me. And uh, that's how I did it. And, and this is after working a 14, 15 hour day on those movies. You know, we worked extraordinary long hours on those movies. They're so hard. And, you know, me as ADs, crew would work about 12. But my, I would just come an hour early. We wouldn't leave to an hour or two after, right? You know, so by the time you travel home, it's, you know, long ass days. It's hard, but keep reminding yourself, why did I start this in the first place? And you're still young enough to keep pushing your job, all three of you. There's a reason actors work in restaurants. We all tease about it, but there's a reason because they can afford them the time to do their auditions and stuff like that. To follow a passion, a career that is a passion career, and that's writing, that's music, that's acting, that's filmmaking, is sometimes you have to have jobs that pay the bills. And it's hard to remind yourself that, why did I do this in the first place? I, I, don't, know, I don't know if that answered your question or not, because it is, it is hard. It is a hard one, especially for you, uh, with respect to it's so close to each other. Try to just start getting to a habit of doing something for yourself, writing some music or something, just so you're, you know, and find some joy in it. You know, I, I find myself sometimes uh, falling into that that line of like Chad and I will be editing or, you know, trying to finish up on a film or something like that. It just becomes this monotony of like, oh, I just got to get it done. And it, and it kind of loses its fun sometimes. Yep. And then I'll just like, get an idea for a sketch and uh, or something that is what kind of got me into this in the first place yep. of like just doing funny videos. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to work on making this video f- like a big thing. I just, I had an idea. I want to go shoot it while it's in my head. I just want to grab a phone or something because the minute I start to plan it, it becomes work. And then I'm like, now it's going to take forever and it's going to become bigger than it was when it could have just been shot and done and we could have laughed and then moved on to the fun, you know, the the work again. Right. And sometimes you just, you do, you just have to unplug, go, hey, I'm going to go do this fun thing real quick that I love doing. I'm going to make some people laugh and then I'm going to get back to work because now I've kind of filled my soul a little bit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think I think too. I think it's finding that like finding out whether the thing that you love is what you really want to do that many hours of the day. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, my favorite thing is this because specifically because it's taken me away from the work. Exactly. I don't, you know, so if you know, like, well, yeah, I'm really good at this thing. I think I want to, you know, oh, write music for my life or something like that. But then you realize, well, no, the reason I loved it is because the unstructured part of just sitting down and finding a melody and making a song out of it and stuff. And yeah, you want it to be out there and hopefully you can make money. But it's like sometimes is it the, no, you know what? This this is the hobby. I still need to find something that I enjoy for work. Yeah. But this will be my passion on the side. I don't want, I'll ruin it if I try to make it my business. Mm -hmm. And then other times where it's like, no, I want to, I, like I want to find problems all day long and figure them out. And when we're done, we have a movie. And, you know, that's, I think it's checking in with yourself and finding out, you know, am I 90% hating this thing? Well, maybe I shouldn't have this as my job then. But if you're mostly there and there's just those things that are like, yeah, that's the that's the bad part and this is the bad day. But ultimately it's like, I'll wake up tomorrow and be happy to be at set again. Or yeah. the next project I'll be like, okay, this was just a bad project. You know, next time we'll be finding Sasquatch, you know, and this time we're, <laughs> you know, a month off, you know, trying to put a boat in the water in the middle of the Caribbean. <laughs> and a wild I, you, I say that sentence and then you're like, yeah, wait a second, but that's that's the bad day. OK, well, <laughs> but but I think it's just I think it's just that checking in with yourself and making sure where you're at and being honest with that and knowing if that's the thing. Stephen King has a great quote where after he got hit by the car and he was talking to somebody and he was just like, yeah, I may never write a book again or publish a book again. I think is how he specifically said it. And she's like, you're not, how you're not going to write books. He's like, Oh, I'll write every day of my life. I just don't want to publish a book. It's like, Cause that's the work is rewriting it, doing the publisher thing, getting, you know, getting your notes from your publisher, hitting deadlines, all that. He's like, he write, he goes, I have drawers of stuff. No one will ever see because I'm going to always write, but it's just the business. He was, you know, probably tired. Now he's written several books since then. So <laughs> obviously he's like, yeah, it's not that bad. I already wrote it. People should read it. Yeah. But, but it's like, you know, I think he was probably checking in with himself and being like, that's the part I hate. I just want to write stories and be like, oh, that was a good story. You got to mm -hmm. check in with yourself and find out where you're at. Like great advice. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, it comes back to even the name of this thing is called Creator Burn. I mean, I feel it right now. I'm like, I'm ready to go, you know, just tired <laughs> of you guys. And, you know, <laughs> where's that? Where do you find that feeling? You know, like when I'm done with this conversation, I can already tell, man, I'm on like cloud nine, you know, I'm yeah. ready to, you know, take <laughs> on the world because yeah. it feels great. Anytime I talk about, anytime I talk about film, anytime I, I've been doing this a lot. I've been doing a lot of these lectures for colleges and all different age groups. I did a lecture for a group of Santa Clauses and swear to God, how to audition. <laughs> so uh, just talking about it gets me excited and it gets me excited for the people I'm talking to in their careers and also gets me excited for my own. It just reminds me that, you know, there's so much, so many stories out there still to be told and a great avenue. This is, a, it's a, you know, right now is a weird time, but we're going to come out of this time and there's going to be a lot of content that is going to be made and need to be made. And we all have voices that can be heard. In about nine months, there's going to be a whole lot of babies coming out too. Yeah, yeah, I uh, and, and divorces probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. divorce each other because they can't leave their houses. Right. <laughs> Broke too many windows playing yeah. golf inside. Yeah. Let's really get into the, the deep stuff here. Would you rather bring back an extinct species or have a mythical creature exist? 
<laughs> Who goes first? <laughs> you go first, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would want to bring back an extinct species. Which one do you? Which one? That's tough. Got do you it. have one in mind? Uh, th- thanks. You're gonna. Bring- <laughs> Sasquatch. Wait, he, he's not. Sasquatch. Ex- he's not extinct as he even though he's even found him. Yeah. <laughs> would he be a more mythical creature? Maybe. One of those really nice dinosaurs, not the old big ones eat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, I don't have a list of extinct creatures on so the, the dodo bird. <laughs> I should have no. done my homework first, damn it. <laughs> I think, anyway, point being is I'd rather bring back something that's already here than just yeah. populate, you know, like suddenly I want a dragon. But then yeah. a dragon would be cool. <laughs> yeah. I think, okay. uh, I think I would uh, make a centaur exist because then you could write it and have a really good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> You should meet my friend here. He's hung like a horse. <laughs> the best wingman ever. He's like, no, nah, that's the only part that's human, unfortunately. <laughs> I think I would go with, yeah, like a like a bringing something extinct back. Really, I feel like they kind of fall in the same thing. If they're if they're not here and have been extinct, or they're mythical, they're not here. <laughs> It'd be cool to see either one. I mean, yeah, I think dinosaurs are probably the the thing that seem to be the coolest thing to see. Like a just a giant brontosaurus or something at some point has got to be just amazing to look at. And again, he's not going to eat me, so <laughs> you can kind of be like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> just the brontosaurus. Not, uh, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's going to feed that thing? <laughs> All right, number two. Ready? Would you rather try and survive a zombie apocalypse or survive a real-life purge? Not the dietary purge, the purge like the movie. <laughs> like a purge only happens for a couple hours, all right? Like a day, I think. A day, yep. Yeah. As opposed to zombie apocalypse is like months and months. Yeah. And <laughs> forever. Years and years. Yeah. I've always been fascinated with zombie apocalypses. Like I was, I was hoping that this coronavirus somehow or another turned people into zombies, but <laughs> the right people, the right people, yeah, all the right people. I haven't yet. <laughs> Whoever that is in your head, that's that's you. Next full moon, if you're cured of the disease you turn into a zombie that's my theory so (laughs) and that that 102 year old woman the 102 year old that actually survived coronavirus i think she's a zombie queen i'm convinced i'm all (laughs) yeah uh i think for the fun of it zombie apocalypse because i don't i think we're all fascinated with it i think i would rather survive a purge because not everyone is participating and they're human so there's a lot less to deal with but I would be more interested in what kind of zombies would come about in a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think the purge because then if you are basically you have none of that activity three hundred and whatever days the rest of the time. That's pretty nice if then you can just figure out a way to hunker down for a day. Yeah. You know, I there's something on Netflix yeah. I can watch for a while. <laughs> during, the, during the purge, you could always just say, "I've got Corona, I've got Corona." Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have. I need to get toilet paper today. You know what? I'll wait till tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For me, I think it'd be zombies because I've been dealing. I've got three kids, and they're constantly like, "Daddy, daddy." (laughs) So I'm used to like pushing the, you know, pushing away, pushing away. As long as they don't gang up on you at the same. Yeah, as I say, but then they when they 
you know, come in as a horde. That's the, that's the part. You got to build walls, man. A horde of homeschoolers. <laughs> I saw a thing on something floating around. It said, you guys think this is bad? Wait until these, from 20 years from now, when the country's ran by homeschoolers led by day drinkers. <laughs> yep. um, what would be one of your not film related, what's a book that you like? My favorite book? Uh, or one you like. It doesn't have to be your favorite favorite. But, no, you know, no. Like I mean, my, my favorite series of books is I love the uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, the original Sherlock Holmes novels. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but I also love Catcher in the Rise. So probably, I know it sounds cliche, but it truly, I, I could reread that all the time. I love Catcher in the Rise. I just got the, uh, actually the, the Sherlock series on Audible. Yeah. Uh, the cool. one that Stephen Fry oh, reads. It's funny to, to read them and you're always constantly going, I wish they would really make that into a movie. But, you know, because mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes story always been kind of been watered down. I think the closest, in my opinion, the closest thing ever came to Sherlock Holmes was that TV show House. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. If you really look at him, even in House, mm-hmm. Wilson was Watson and How. Um, yeah. But it's because he was a drug addict and, you know, the whole thing. So I, I think they've really, and they touched upon it, but I think. Is that why it's House and Wilson instead of Holmes and Watson? And Watson, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a film related or kind of a, a book that's kind of helped you with your career? One of my favorite books for writing, and everyone's going to think, everyone's going to say McKee, and he was great for story structure, but it was a, a great book that I did. It was Vicki King wrote a book called How to Write a Movie in 21 Days. It, it, what it does is it teaches you how to stru- it structures you on the art of writing. As a, It doesn't get into the story structure, and that's McKee's job, but she's more, I'm going to discipline you and, not, and structure you in the process of writing. I remember, remember reading that book and going, I got to do this right now. So uh, I, I actually, uh, hold on, someone's on my door. Can I? Yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where can we find more about you? And is there social or any kind of any place that we can go to, to kind of follow what you're up to? I do have my porn website, if you like that. It's called Doing What Actors Do with Dave Vangus. <laughs> Immerse yourself. Well, I'll tickle my balls. Uh, <laughs> on a movie. I'm doing that. We're doing that movie, Davis. Please, please. I, I, I want it, man. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll jog it aside. My, uh, you can always find anything about anybody, and IMDb is probably the best thing. I'm sorry, my resume is all on that. David H. Vengus Jr., we want to see more of what I've done on that. And uh, yeah. Is there kind of a just a last statement you want to give kind of new people starting out, just something encouraging? The most encouraging thing I could say is to don't forget what your passion is. Don't forget why you got in the business in the first place and make sure you always leave time for yourself to foster that talent. It can be acting, it can be writing, it can be directing, it can be deep, whatever. There's so many great opportunities and a lot of people have this kind of misconception that, oh, if I'm going to get in the movie business, I got to be a director, a writer, or an actor. But there are so many careers in the industry. As you know, sound design, sound mixing, obviously all part of the same thing. There's set design, there's construction, there's prop makers, there's there's set dressing, there's costumers, hair and I go on and on. There's a thousand different professions in the industry on all types, especially with visual effects now with the virtual production going on. And that's a whole other conversation we could have about Lion King and Jungle Book and how virtual production and visual effects is really being incorporated within the live action filmmaking. And also, if you're in college, I'm going to go back to any one of the younger younger, uh, listeners, is do internships, get as much experience while you're educating yourself as well. There's so many great internship programs out there in television, film, 
any, any capacity. Do just do internships throughout your college education. So when you get into the workforce, you have a resume, you started with a resume and don't be afraid to knock on doors. Don't be afraid to reach out. I knew nobody when I first got in this business, not a soul. And I, back then you had to type every resume, type every letter and send it through the mail. I did because there was no internet. There, we didn't have any of this back to the, back in 87. And that's how I got my first job on the Cosby show. My very first, no judgments, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I now know what those little white pills he had me pick up for him, but okay. <laughs> I'm Joe. Uh, All right, if you're taking one, I'm taking one. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember half my time with the Cosby Show, but other than that, <laughs> I'll joke it aside. One of the best experiences I've ever had, Mr. Cosby was an extraordinary guidance counselor, if you made to the career my at the time. So I really enjoyed it. It was great first trip. But getting that was, I just sent a resume. My resume of internships is what got me that job. Mm-hmm. And I had experience already. So anyway, that would be the advice I would give in all levels. Awesome. Yeah. And I think one thing I've taken from you too is just like where you've talked about, I'm glad you went, you know, you talked about uh, Marshall just because, you know, watching just, you know, your social feed and stuff like that. And you talk about him. And then during this time where you've, you've taken it to, you know, honor people and what they're doing and stuff like that is, you know, I think you, you given back and that, that idea of that, that mentorship, you know, and I know that you've kind of talked about that before of, you know, look, look for somebody that, you know, you have a similar probably temperament with or, you know, background and kind of thing and and use them, you know, if they're at kind of where you're at and try to find those examples of like, okay, I'm going to try to work with this person as much as I can so I can just, you know, learn, 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 you know, and, and do that. So I just... No. That's my observation of you, Dave, is that <laughs> you do a lot of that. And then you, you've you turned around and are giving back, you know, stuff too. And we appreciate you right, coming you. on and, and talking with us. Love it. This was fun. As always, please check out the show notes for links to our guest work. The Creator Burn Podcast is a production of C2D2 Films and Follow Happy Productions. Written and produced by Chad Crenshaw, Davis DeRock, and CJ Drummiller. Original music by CJ Drummiller and Joseph Adam Gray. 